You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Dr. Az Hakim was born and brought up in North Wales and has lived and worked in London since studying medicine. He's a consultant psychiatrist who previously trained in forensic psychotherapy, mentalization-based therapy, and is a group analyst. He previously worked within the NHS in forensic psychotherapy, specializing in analytic psychotherapy for conditions relating to sex, gender, sexual perversion, and violence at the Portman Clinic of the Tavistock and Portman Clinics. Dr. Az Hakim is unique in that he is the only consultant psychiatrist in psychotherapy who specializes in the application of exploratory psychotherapy to persons who suffer from gender dysphoria. He set up and ran the only specialist psychotherapy service for adults with gender dysphoria in the UK, in the NHS, and he's the author of Trans, Exploring Gender Identity and Gender Dysphoria. After over 15 years of working in the NHS, Dr. Hakim now works exclusively in private practice. In addition to his clinical work, Dr. Hakim has worked as a consultant to the media, on-screen specialist, and TV co-presenter on a number of television programs in both the UK and Australia. Dr. Az Hakim considers himself a gender-critical psychiatrist. This was a fascinating conversation, especially while talking about the groups that he ran, where it was a blended population of individuals who had already gone through transition, as well as individuals who were seeking to go through transition. It's absolutely remarkable to note that less than 2% of the patients who were in these groups prior to transitioning decided to go on and have the physical sex change. And the 2% that did had a much more realistic idea of what transition means and what identity means and how transitioning changes your body and your life in ways that it doesn't. So even though these were not um, psychotherapy groups aimed at any kind of reconciliation with the body, it was really fascinating to hear Dr. Hakim talk about how combining these two groups of people really helped everyone to make sense of their experience. So here's our discussion with Dr. Az Hakim. Hi, Stella. How's it going today? I'm very well. How are you, Sasha? I'm doing well. I'm excited to introduce our first British guest to the Pioneers series. Dr. Dr. Az Hakim, welcome. Thank you very much. Welsh, even. Welsh, true. You live in the UK, though, is that fair yeah, to say? Yeah, 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 I live okay. in the UK. Okay, all right, well, so our Welsh well, Wales is guest. in the UK, Sasha. Okay, <laughs> You're such an American. <laughs> I know, I really am. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us on the show. Um, thank you for having me. You have um, years of experience working with gender identity and trans and transition and detransition and all of these things. So, um, where should we start? I know you have a long history with this population. Can you maybe take us back to how you got interested in working with this group of people? Yeah. So <clears throat> I'll tell you, um, the right back to, you know, when I, when I was a teenager, I think, what should I do? I could never decide whether I wanted to do fine art because all I was really doing at school was fine art. I was obsessed with painting or or medicine. 
Um, and the reason I wanted to do medicine was because I found uh, a, a book on Freud, uh, from, uh, Freud's Interpretation of Dreams in my local library in North Wales. And I read it and I thought, I don't understand what this person's talking about, but I really want to understand it. So I was torn between medicine to do psychiatry or fine art. And I, I, I applied to both and I got into both. And I, I, I sort of tossed a coin sort of. Uh, the day before, and I decided I'll do medicine first, and I'll do fine art later. Of course, I never did fine art later. But um, so I went. I went into medicine, and then I, I, I the idea of uh, sex changes and and uh, uh, and transsexuals. I'd come across that in the from the art side, from like the Warhol factory and all those the transsexuals there. And I thought, I initially thought this is a wonderful piece of art. This is sculpture. We can make people into different people. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do. Uh, plastic surgery so then my next dilemma was do I do psychiatry or do plastics and I and my first job um, as, a, as a junior houseman was in uh, plastic surgery I managed to convince the prof the prof that I was a keen budding plastic surgeon poor guy um, and I was helping do these gender reassignment operations and I was thinking there's something a bit a bit mad about this because we're, we're doing we're changing these people into different people but we're sort of changing their bodies. Wonder what's happening in their heads. And I thought maybe the psychiatrists know what's happening in their heads. So I went to the psychiatry, and psychiatrists weren't even thinking about what was happening in these people's heads. They were saying, "Oh, the the, the surgeons are happy to do it, um, and the, we send them to the gender clinic." So I thought, "Wonder what the gender clinics are doing." The gender clinics were sort of saying, "Oh, well, we're, we're ruling out that they haven't got schizophrenia or psychosis, so that's fine. We'll let the surgeons do." It. And there was a denial of responsibility. I thought, "Well." I, I want to find out what's happening inside their heads, what's really happening in their minds, because I always find minds quite interesting. So um, when I when I was a, a, a specialist registrar, I went to the Portman Clinic, and I was I was one of the first trainees in forensic psychotherapy, which is a new specialty. And I worked at the Portman, which is a, a, a psychoanalytic psychotherapy clinic, which specialises in problems to do with sex, gender, sexuality, perversion, and violence. So all, all the people that, that usual psychotherapists don't go near with a barge pole. And I had this five-year wonderful, uh, luxurious uh, training where they said, well, you sort of, sort of do what you want for five years, which was great. Um, so I, I, I inherited two psychotherapy groups from, from colleagues that were retiring just as I was joining. And one was a psychotherapy group for people who had regretted sex changes, post-op regretters. And one was a psychotherapy group for people who were thinking about having a sex change. Um, so I started running these two groups. I thought this is, you know, one of these groups was really gender euphoric. Well, hey, we're going to be these new, brave new people. And the other was a really miserable, depressed group that was stuck in this state of mourning. And I thought this this wasn't very helpful. So I merged the groups together and I and I started running mixed gender dysphoria groups. And it was really helpful. It was really interesting. It worked. It was it was a really useful thing. So I I carried on working individually with people and then after after i built a certain therapeutic relationship I, I then entered them into the group and it was it was what we call a slow open group so people could stay in the group as long as they wanted and then um and and i ran that and i ran that for the 12 years i was at the clinic what sort of year uh, are we when you're talking about this so i started in 2000 um and um i uh, left the nhs in 2012 so it was that 12 year period and how long did the average person stay in your groups? So, the, so in in that clinic, there it was probably the only clinic in the NHS where in the UK where you could have therapy for as long as you wanted. So, some people stayed for the entire twelve years. But what I found was 
any gender dysphoria they had seemed to go within a year of being in the group. And and th- th- when they stayed on, they they then took over the mantle of being another auxiliary therapist as, oh, yes, well, I had this problem and this is... You know, so they and they identify- do that in AA and the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they stay yeah. on, yeah. Yeah. And um, w- was was one was there numbers involved? Like, did you have six six euphorics and you know six regretters, or did you carefully kind of how did no, you do it? it yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that careful. No, I, so the group size was about eight because it was it was what we call a small group. So I'm a, I'm a group analyst, so we, we we like to think of eight as being this this sort of nice number because when you get above ten, it becomes the, the quality of the group and the dynamics change. So I aimed for about eight, and the the population of my patients were um, there were probably about twenty five percent who were um, um, who came in feeling that that a sex change was something that they that was going to be helpful for them. Twenty six percent of my patients were post operative regretters. Five um, percent uh, were what you'd call autogynephilia, and about 20% were transvestites and transvestites are people that we don't really talk about anymore but there were they, so but it was a nice mix um and then it was mainly biological males um probably about 80% and 20% um biological females so that that was a sort of mix but it would vary over time but it was roughly like that so the the biological females in these groups did they have you know the gender dysphoria that was quite representative in females like same sex attracted females who maybe were slightly more masculine in mannerisms and behavior yeah and a lot of them had um um a degree of internal homophobia to their own sexuality um and um there may be you know that may have been for cultural reasons or um and some people um it was some some of them weren't particularly sexual some of them just didn't want to be um, women rather than wanting to be men. And it may have also been for cultural reasons. Um, and you said there 25% were seeking a sex change, 26% were regretters, 20% were transvestites. Yeah, it doesn't add up to 100%. No, it doesn't. You can, you, can, you, can have, you can overlap. <laughs> There's always someone that adds those numbers up. Yeah, you can overlap. You can have more than one. <laughs> okay, that's okay. Carry on, carry on. <laughs> Um, but, but yes, but it seemed to work, and the and it, you know it wasn't what what you you know it wasn't a conversion therapy. So my role wasn't to persuade people to not have a sex change, and it wasn't to help people through a sex change. I was being completely neutral. These are adults; they can do what they want. I don't mind what they do. All I wanted them to do was think about it, and it was an exploratory space. And the regressors said. If only we had this sort of exploratory space before we went on to do to to, to have the, the the sex changes because no no one was asking us what do you mean you know I I one of them was one of the regressors said um, you know she, she I'm saying she she was a post operative female but she had, she'd been uh, you know in in, a, in in the police force for many years and she suddenly decided that she wanted to have a sex change from he to she. And um, and then, you know, 11 years later, regretted it. And then she went back to the police and said, why on earth didn't you ask me what I was 
thinking about this and because we're being supportive that's what i meant to do and she went back to her family and said why didn't you just ask me what on earth am i thinking about and they said because we're being supportive and everyone kept saying because we're being supportive and what she didn't have was anyone going really you want to be a woman why what, what's that about no, no and that's all all my therapy was doing was was really trying to work out Oh, really what why do you want to do this what is this and what is being a man and what is being a woman what's the difference what, you know and and just that breaking down to very very simple terms um and the thing about a group is it avoided the sort of black and white dichotomy that you get in one-to-one so so on the one-to-one setting you get someone who if you think about the the mind of someone who who may be thinking in a, in a trans way it's very black and white i mean the, the very core of trans is a very black and white dichotomy so it's very male female right wrong yes i am no you're not sort of thing so in a one-to-one setting you're primed to this pantomime oh yes i am oh no you're not situation even if you're not saying that they sort of perceive you're saying that and and whereas in a in a in a group you've got people giving their own narrative and then someone else with the gender dysphoria turning to this person saying hang on you sound just like me but you sound completely mad and coming from some from from themselves it was far more legitimate than coming from some smarty pants therapist who didn't have a clue didn't understand and wasn't on their wavelength but they but had far more legitimacy coming from within the group so that was that was that was a good thing about the group what was the resistance rate of those people that came into the group and wanted a sex changer I shouldn't say the decision. So, so what I, were I the numbers like? So yeah. I so whereas I'm saying the aim wasn't to try and change anyone's mind or thing, I, I looked at the population at the end of the twelve years and all the patients I had, and less than two percent went on to have any sort of physical um intervention. And that two percent went in with a very realistic mindset and they said Well, we're gonna do this because we've always wanted to do it, but we know we're not going to become men or women all we could ever become is trans men or trans women and you know they were very realistic and they were very they knew the limitations and they weren't they weren't sort of going into it blindly and they thought about phrases but it was less than two percent when i read about this and i'm having this feeling all over again i was just like well there we go this is what as soon as i read the concept i said yeah this is what we need to do these two groups need to meet even not even regretters i would have just thought People who have transitioned 10 years plus versus people who want to transition should meet often and yeah, they should meet yeah. within a, a, this context. Has yeah. that continued? Did you leave in 2012? No. What happened? So I left in 2012. So in, in, in mid midlife crisis, I decided to go and live in Australia. So I, I, I left the NHS and went to go and live in Australia. Then I got home sick, then I came back. Um, but so so the, no no one took over the mantle and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't exist. I mean, my my father was with an orthopedic surgeon who uh, treated high pressure injection injuries to the back of the of the tendons of the back of the hand, and he he thought that was the most interesting thing would would go on about forever. And I've realised that I've become a bit like that. So I realised that whereas I think doing analytic groups for genders for is really interesting, the fact that no one else no other doctors are doing it means it probably isn't. So uh, no, no one else wanted to do it. But also the, the clinic quite rightly said, the, this was a clinic who was dealing with rapists, murderers, paedophiles, you know, and 
but they were terrified of treating this population. You know, they, they a they couldn't think about it. We'd give weekly presentations of our work, but whenever someone presented the paedophile or the murderer or the rapist, there was no problem. So we'd all think about it. Sort of, you know. Whenever I, I I presented my work, they 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 couldn't bear thinking about. It. There's something about the gender dysphoria which really um, was uncomfortable with the, with, with um, analysts and therapists' minds, which is interesting. And they kept trying to stop the work. So they didn't like the work happening. They sort of let me do it because. Of, probably generate lots of money for the, the NHS clinic. But, um, but that was exactly, the numbers were about to explode from 2012 onwards. The Portman is linked with the Tavistock, isn't it? The same The Portman is linked with the Tavistock, but, they, but it's, it's like one of those organisations where, you know, the different components don't really, they're all very Connect. different. So, so the, the GIDS, when I, when I was there, the GIDS was a very, very small satellite who needed to borrow rooms off various departments, but no one really felt they were part of it and then then like like a like a malignant tumor grew and took over and metastasized and um yeah so before you left in 2012 i mean you must have been aware that what was happening inside of your blended groups was quite remarkable yeah uh, yeah, yeah so so what happened to I guess that concept, did you ever think to pick it back up? I mean, I think this sounds really, really important. And the number, that 2% number is really shocking. And it's actually interesting because what a lot of activists often claim is that less than 1% of people regret their transition. And you were seeing a large number of people with not necessarily a detransition experience, but who had some regrets, at least about some aspects oh, of their procedures. This 1% figure is a complete fallacy, right. no, pun, no pun intended. The um, There's no follow-up study, so how on earth would you know? So all my regretters said, well, you know, well, well a, few, a very small number of them went back to the, the, the gender clinics and the gender clinics said, there's nothing we can do for you, we've given you what you wanted. But the majority said, look, we spent years convincing our GPs, our psychiatrists, our gender clinicians to give us what we wanted. There's no way we're going to tell them it was a mistake. It's really embarrassing. So they would they would go and live by the seaside and um, regretting what they did and feeling they were, they were inauthentic and a fraud. And what, what I found is that the the initial feeling that they were trying to solve, have a solution for this sense of inauthenticity remained, but they, they were now feeling inauthentic inauthentic in a transgender role. So they, they, no one followed them up. No one, no, they were invisible statistics. So this 1%, I don't know where that comes from, but, the, but all my 26% of my patients were invisible to any data collection. It's interesting you say that about authenticity because I often think is that is that the main event that they're seeking authenticity and they're it fixates on gender. I saw Jazz Jennings saying in the in the latest series, she said she said to her mother in a very sad way, she kind of said, Well, I, I don't really feel like the real me yet. And it it was really sad that she's still chasing this real me, whoever the hell that is. What I found was that there was a there was like a trajectory, an evolution of of how someone ended up in that in that position, and and I found that there was a you know that there's and I've got this flow diagram in my book. This is, this is a gentle plug for my book, which I have, I've managed not to mention yet, but it's available on Amazon. Um, it's I've read it. I that. recommend oh, good, it. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Very thank good you. book. Thank you. I'm very excited I when I read it. Just need to find a publisher for my second book. Publishers are a bit. Screaming to them. Um, so, so in the, the flow chart that I've got is birth, 
And then after birth, there's a gender identity that's, that's, that's the same as your biological sex. And then at some point, at any age, there's some form of breakdown. And it may be a, a little breakdown or a big breakdown. It might be a depression and, or maybe something organic. You may have some sort of like, you know, encephalitis. But there's some, that something goes wrong, but you recover from it. And then when you recover from it, you recover, but there's something not quite right. And there's this feeling of something not quite right. And then you, 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 you have this period of time where you're searching for what doesn't feel quite right. And for people with vulnerability factors, we can go into what those are, they then locate the problem as being in the gender framework. And then they go, okay, so, so what's not quite right is my gender. Okay, therefore I need to fix my gender. And then they, they go on this trajectory, this, this tunnel vision, I need to change my gender. And, and you know, the, the rest of the story you know. And I also found there was, for the people who weren't atypical or weren't transvestite and weren't autogynophilic, the very classic, yes, I think I should be the opposite sex, there was an almost 100% concordance with um, features suggestive of autistic spectrum disorder. I'm not going to say the autistics, I didn't test them for it, but they, they had the classic features that you, you, you classically find. And there was an over-representation of my population in software programmers, people with maths degrees, and you know, things that you would associate with, 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 with autism. And the, and the, 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 the thing about autism, the thing that, that, that is classic about autism is they're not, they're not able to gauge what is happening in the mind of someone else. So it's called theory of mind. So the autistic person has no theory of mind. They can only go on clues. So you, they, they, they struggle with getting a sense of what someone really thinks or really feels in relation to them. And, and to give an example of this, I had a, I, in my group, someone said, oh, I went out for dinner last night and I was dressed, meaning dressed as the opposite sex. And everyone thought, I, I wouldn't believe I was a woman. And I said, well, how, how do you know? Well, well no, one, no one said anything. I said, well, how do you know what they thought? Well, they, well I was wearing a dress, I had long hair, I had lipstick on, and people called me madam. And so so, so well, they, they must have thought I was a woman. That's a, a classic example of theory of mind because, because you know, all the macro clues suggest that they thought they were, but, but the idea that that person may have doubted or had another thought in their head that they weren't expressing. And what I found was that the more autistic someone was, the better the outcome for the sex change. And the less autistic, the worse outcome because the, the regretters or had this sense of, oh, well, actually, maybe I'm not. Whereas the autistic people were protected from that because they go, yes, of course, no, everyone thinks I will be, yes, because everyone's calling me by pronouns, I've got long hair, I've got a dress, I've got lipstick, this is what a woman is, everyone's calling me she, there's no problem. Whereas the ones who are less autistic were going, oh, maybe they had this, this, you know, this infiltration of doubt and they're able to consider what might be happening in the other person's mind and whether they were doubting it. And so, so in a way, the, the autism was present, but it's also protective for the wrong reasons. I want to mention something about that because I think about the current kind of wave of activism and the slogans, and it seems mm. almost perfectly created for that particular type of patient. And Absolutely. something that I often explore in, in therapy with my clients is when people use your pronouns, are you fine with it just being a formality or a politeness? Or do you really literally want that person to experience you as the gender you prefer or the sex you want to be seen as? And I think you're so right that for some people, as long as all of the bells and whistles match up with the category that they want to be seen as, it's good enough. And then I think the people who are able to understand 
that deeper question of like authentically being perceived, they're the ones who end up having the bubble burst, the fantasy burst. So that's very I think, interesting. I think what you're saying is the, is the people who are able to perceive on an interpersonal level mm-hmm. a degree of authenticity on an interpersonal way, whereas the autistic person, if you call me she, you believe I'm she. Right. So, so the emphasis on pronouns is just a, you know, for everyone else. It's just a word, it's meaningless. But if you, if for the autistic mindset, if you call me she, you must believe I'm she. So, as long as you're calling me she, you must believe I'm she. If ever you get it wrong, you slip up. Oh my God! You suddenly don't believe I'm a she. You think I'm a he, <laughs> and it's all about the meaning. So, for all of us, we don't care about pronouns. Pronouns. Are, I mean, they're, they're, they're a waste of time. Where, whereas, if you're autistically minded, then <clears throat> a pronoun is an indicator of what you really think of me. And so, therefore, do you think uh, we should roll with this pronouns idea or should we tell these people who are autistic? I'm not. I'm just interested in your position on pronouns as a result of this very good point you've just made. So in my group, I had this thing where I I said to the group at the outset, um, for those of people who've had who are post-op, I'll use the post-op pronouns because I think there was something quite cruel not to. For the people who hadn't, I stick with their their, their biological pronouns. And I said that from the outside. This is how we do it in the group. And they, they were fine with that. Everyone was fine with that. And that was something that made sense to the group. And and the group, I mean, it wasn't just me challenging it. The group were challenging each other as well all the time. So any notion of, of, of gender was deconstructed by the group, what it meant, what, you know. So any, any meaning of anything that was gendered was deconstructed by the whole group, not just me. And the people who'd been in the group for a while were able to do that really easily. So, you know, the, the, my notion was gender doesn't exist. So you, you can't, So anything that was presumed to be to do with gender was deconstructed because it was, you know, it was it, gender. Gender is a social construct. You know, it's, it's like religion. It's something that we've created to make sense of something, but it's essentially not there. And have you thought of running the group since? Like, it's, it just seems like extraordinary. Here we all are, myself and Sasha and Lisa and all of us inundated with clients left, right and centre. And there is this group that we have all read about and got excited and thought about. And I'm thinking, why aren't we running it even once a month in a city or something? It just seems extraordinary. I suppose I'm, 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 you know, I'm a clinician. And I'm not clever enough to know how to set up a, you know, so, so, you know, if I'm in a clinic which does something, I can do it. That's fine. But, I do, you know, I, um, I'm in the private sector now. So now, now, now I see people privately and it's a, you know, it's a logistics thing. So. No, I'd, I'd, or I'd be interested in helping supervise people who do groups in it because that's another way. But I think all you need, the important one was easy because we had all these patients and you could do what you wanted and I set one up. Whereas, um, yeah, I'm probably not clever enough to know how to set one up in the private sector. I, I'd be curious what you think of this because you, you've also seen, well, we've all seen the population change pretty dramatically. And yeah. I wonder if there was a group full of this ROGD presentation type of kid, yeah. would that be as effective or would it be like what some, you know, eating disorder clinics have seen where it kind of exacerbates the symptom or there's a competitiveness about whose gender dysphoria is the worst? Like, I know that we don't have any hard evidence on this, but what do you suspect would happen if we ran such types of groups with ROGD kids? And well, I, I guess first thing I'd say is, I don't think you could get away with using birth sex pronouns for everybody. 
I think they would yeah. they would kind of have a rebellion. Yeah, have you um, met us though? But, 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 but about the rebellion and the anger, I mean, the, the other thing I was going to talk about was um, the, a clinical term, autistic meltdown. So um, with with you know, I don't know whether any of you have seen the that wonderful play, The Curious Instance of the Dog in the Night, or read the book. And it's a wonderful portrayal of autism. And you know, if the if the I don't know if the gravy touches the peas or the peas touch the the, the fish, you know, there's a sort of autistic meltdown. If if something doesn't happen as the autistic mind wants it to do, they don't get upset. They get nuclear upset. The Star Wars, the French program, upset. So you see that with transactivism because if you don't agree, if you don't agree with me, then you don't understand because the way I see it is the only way. So if you don't agree, if you don't agree, therefore you don't understand. Not you disagree. You don't understand because to understand would be to agree and then if you don't understand or don't agree then I, I won't just be a bit upset I will have autistic meltdown so that's why you get this massive upset of of and trying to cancel everyone destroy everyone's lives contact your employer basically try and kill them off you know and and going back to my clinic the reason why they preferred working with rapists, murderers, and paedophiles is because they don't have autistic meltdown. Whereas the the, the people who have this the, the 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 trans mindset with a tinge of autism, with the autistic meltdown, cause lots of problems for clinicians. And they, they they make their lives hell. So they so they weren't very keen on continuing doing that work. Um, and that's probably goes for a lot of psychotherapists and a lot of psychiatrists. Um, but going back to your ROGD um, idea, I think you'd have to have a mixture of of the sisters as well and people who weren't ROGD and because you need the the the, the count the counter to offset it you can't just have a group of people in agreement you know otherwise it would just be like a a knitting circle and, and getting better knitting techniques you'd have to have a mix and a contrast and so they can bounce off each other and and challenge each other because without contrast and differences there will be no challenge and you could have a mix with, let's say, it occurs to me, like uh, with ROGD um, teenagers and maybe people who are deep in transition but seem to regret it. Like, yeah. you know, th that is conceivable. And do you think it would work over Zoom? I, I've, I've never done a group over Zoom, so, so I, I, don't, I don't know. But, but, you know, all of us were very Zoom wary before COVID and now we're all completely Zoom happy. So, oh, well, um, so, <laughs> Zoom accepting. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I've never run a group by Zoom, but that doesn't mean it's not, it's not possible. So, um, you know, who knows? Our, our wheels are turning. But I'm curious to kind of fast forward because you said that you ran this group, then you left in 2012, then you returned. Um, is that when you went into private practice? Or can you kind of yeah. pick up your yeah, timeline yeah. from there? Well, I went I went to Australia for a year and then I came back. But then when I came back, I went into private practice. And and I think I went from my, my, my gender stuff, went from doing a whole load of gender work and only writing in professional journals, which no one except the person who writes it reads. <laughs> but I wrote about my group in 2012 in the you know advances in psychiatric treatment. But who's read that apart from me, my mother? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and and then to now, I do a, a bit of the work, but I speak about it a lot, and I write about it a lot, and I tweet about it a lot. And and that's why only only in the last few years, people have probably known who I am. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the the ratio of work to talking has probably <laughs> you know changed. So now I, I think I'm more useful writing about it in more accessible forms. And, and and doing a bit of the work, whereas before I was doing a lot of the work and no one knew what I was doing, really. 
We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, your name has definitely become so much more prominent as this debate has taken its rightful place and somewhat more of a public eye. I guess, like, was there a time when you noticed this issue kind of blowing up in the public and feeling like, wow, I actually have a lot of important contribution here because you were kind of under the radar. So at what point did you... I thought I thought I actually thought up until a few years ago I was the only gender critical person or the only person critiquing gender ideology in the whole world, and I'd and I and I and I and I'd go everywhere and everyone was just adopting an affirmative model. And I thought this is what I'm wasting my time talking to myself and no one's listening. But then then I, I discovered very late Twitter and I realised oh my god there's more people out there. and, <laughs> and, and it was I wish I was and there then, that day. Yeah. <laughs> what? Who are these people? And can, we, I can I just say? Um, when you wrote your book, I read your book and I, I could see that you were very thoughtful. And I kind of, you know, I went to all my colleagues saying, hey, this guy is, you know, he's, he's definitely penetrating gender. And everybody was saying, oh, I don't know. It seems a little bit um, as if as if you were very pro-medicalization. And I thought, oh, no, he's he's pro-exploratory. Um, were you very careful writing the book, and was it edited a lot, or was there a? a I, I wanted to be very diplomatic. I wanted it to. I didn't want to come across as too one-sided. So it's it's meant to be balanced. And and now, I mean, I've, I've got another book that I want to get published. But you know, the last publisher I talked to said, "Well, actually, could you make it a very pro-trans book that's that's happy ending stories and everyone's happy?" I said, "Well, that's kind of not what I'm writing. I'm talking about sort of." the whole gender critical approach which is what are we thinking why are we thinking this and why are we castrating children and is this the right idea and Mm -hmm. could there be problems and they said oh yeah we're looking for like a happy ending type book so you know it's the 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 challenge is finding a book because the book I've I've, I, I would like to publish would be great and it's very very much gender critical it's the challenge is finding a publisher who'll publish it so then you kind of discovered all these other people on Twitter. Was there a precipitating event that caused you to go looking? Like, why did you decide at that point after kind of working under the radar all this time? You said that you had been speaking about this everywhere and you seemed to be the only one. Well, I'd go to, I'd go to, to gender identity conferences, which are very mm. much of a certain model. Um, and I remember I went to, well, first of all, I went to, I, I was meant to a conference of the Royal College Psychiatrists in London in 2010. Uh, and it was myself and Julie Bindle on one side of the panel versus Charing Cross on the other. And then uh, Julie Bindle emailed me and said, can I call you quickly? And she called me and said, um, have you Googled yourself recently? I said, no, I never really Google myself. I'm not an narcissistic. And, <laughs> so I, I and then she said, there's a 5,000 person demonstration promise to take direct physical action against you and me at the conference. Like, oh, okay. And then, and then the Royal College thought it was safe just to cancel the conference. They cancelled that conference, which the transactionists thought was some triumph over something. And then, um, and then I went to Australia, and then they flew me over to Darwin, 
Cairns or somewhere, northern Queensland, to do this uh, big keynote speaker. And then they're going to organise a phone me and said, oh, has, um, we don't, you're a bit controversial, aren't you? Said, not really, no. He said, well, all these people are really upset that you're speaking. So oh, honestly, look, you, you don't have to invite me. If it's going to be a problem, he said, no, no, we're Australian. We're very laid back. And they come over. So I went over and I, I was the first morning in the hotel. I was having breakfast and then um, someone came up to me with full of piercings and things, and, and they said, um, are, you, are, you, are you Anna's hacking? I was like, yes. And they said, oh, I've, I've emailed you loads of time. You haven't responded. I said, well, it's very unlike me. And mm-hmm. I, I took their email address. I went back to my hotel room. And I, I looked at my inbox. I searched for their name. And they, they had indeed emailed me several times, but they're all death threats. <laughs> so, <laughs> I so, could so see that why, coming. So, so, so that's why I hadn't responded. So so that was the sort of, you know, and then I, I was having conversations with various delegates um, and they were go, and and they said, you know, why? And, and the, the general theme was, why do you even bother? Because because you're terrible you're not you know you're not affirming why why do you just give up well, i thought well, i'm not with support here and then and i then i i was thinking about setting up a group and trying to work out how to nhs fund this group in the private sector and i met with a certain charity run by a couple i won't say who they are but you know um and um and i said look the, the i'm thinking of, of setting up this service and all they asked me the whole time was, why don't I prescribe hormones? I said, well, there's loads of people prescribing hormones. No one is offering this therapy. And they said, yes, but what these people need is hormones. I said, but can you not see what I'm saying? That, that this, this, this is a unique therapeutic offering that no one else is offering. And they said, but what they need is hormones. And I said, oh, okay. So they mm-hmm. weren't really getting it at all. They just wanted to prescribe hormones. So I went away and they went away. And then they emailed me the next day and said, we just realized you're that person who um and then they said you're that pro psychotherapy who's who's yeah who who, (laughs) and 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 uh trans activists hate you and uh, and i said well hang on a minute this is i don't know why they hate that this is all and they said no no we couldn't possibly be part of anything you do because um uh what they actually said um even if you are more um, balanced and whatever it is and, you know, sort of accepting and transsexuals have a very long uh, memory and they won't forget how they used to perceive you. And I thought this is very interesting. So you're saying they have a long memory, they won't forget how you perceive me, but isn't the whole dilemma of the post-optional transsexual that people have a long memory and they still remember them as their biological sex and wow. then being misgendered. I mean, there's a complete mirroring here. You know, if, if, if I can't be changed from someone who they demonise to someone who's not a, actually a demon at all because they remember me as being some sort of, I mean, I never was a demon, but, you know, so the, uh, but the, how, it's, complete, it's, mm-hmm. it's a complete enactment on the other side, you know. I can never change. How can they change? I can never change. So there's there's something really interesting about that because you very earnestly are kind of reaching out to clinicians that I would say, this is probably not very generous, but are completely off their rockers in a way. And they only see the transition hormone pathway. So it's interesting. You were really earnestly trying to, you know, inform them or have a discussion with them. And I know you call yourself a gender critical psychiatrist. Is that correct? Okay, so at at this point, do you still have attempted relationships with people who are in the hyper affirmative camp or has that shifted over time? Because it feels to me like the activism has really ramped up to a very strong degree. I mean, 
in my in my in my book that I've got published, I've got a trans activist who contributed to the chapter, and she went to one of my talks and she expected to have a fight with me, but realised I was actually being quite reasonable. And anybody yeah. who does talk to me realises I'm quite reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, and then we 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 got on really well. And she's a trans activist. She's in Australia. She's even flown over and had dinner with me in London, and she wrote a book of my the chapter of my book. So you know, most people who meet me realise I'm actually quite reasonable. I'm not this sort of satanic demon anti-trans person. Um, so, you know, it's 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 the fantasy of what someone is and what someone is sort of, you know, uh, perceived to be versus what they really are. And all, all I am is someone who just wants to help people think. Mm-hmm. You know, for adults, I don't really mind what adults do. You know, you could get a tattoo of a cobweb on your face. I think it, was a, it would be a great idea. I wouldn't stop you from doing it. Yeah. The more I think about it, the more we just need public awareness that it's a long and difficult process that carries a very heavy burden. And psychologically, there are probably more satisfying routes we could take. And that would be enough. And then you wouldn't need the whole two psychiatrist letters or one psychiatrist letter and all that, that public awareness would would be a better route to follow. As But, but I think there's two things. There's, there's having uh, a... Uh, uh, hormonal surgical sex change and gender ideology and I think the problem we have is the the monster that we've made of gender ideology the fact that we that you know Stonewall are now trying to champion a belief system which is sort of anti-science and anti-reality so I think there's two completely separate things whether people can have sex changes or not is another thing yeah but saying that sex doesn't exist and gender exists instead is is this fantasy cult religion that we've adopted. And I don't think we should confuse the two. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with people sort of having biological sex changes, whatever, it's surgical, hormonal stuff, that's fine. But if you try and tell me that sex doesn't exist, and instead we have over 100 genders, that's fantasy cuckoo land. That, that, that's a nonsense. So they shouldn't go hand in hand. And this idea that we, that we don't have biological sex, we just have gender, and gender is what you want it to be, is does is is you know it's anti-science it's anti-reality it's like being a flat earther and that's what I, that's what i have a problem with and you know my my the first paper i ever wrote was questioning whether or not uh the person who believes that they're, the, they're the other sex is this a delusion and is this a psychosis are they mad and, and the answer was no they're not but i was asking the question but i think rather than thinking are these people mad are we mad and i think we are mad because we, we're we're now embracing this idea that something isn't real or doesn't exist as in biological sex doesn't exist and that's that's ridiculous we we have gone a bit mad as a as a, as a society you you have a great theory about uh, uh maybe you want to come in before this session but at some stage i'd like you to hear i've heard you talk about the goths the goth mark one mark two mark oh, oh yes absolutely. i love this yeah, yeah. so so as a as a fully committed goth uh, as a teenager, <laughs> I've seen so... a photo. I will I will say <laughs> you definitely wear a goth. <laughs> so so in North Wales we're we're probably a bit behind the curve. So so when I was a teenager, um, I was a, a very very committed uh, goth, and I've 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 charted the trajectory of goth in in the five phases. So. Goth Mark One, which was me, was very severe, you know, listening to Bauhaus, Susie, Virgin Prunes, and we had backcombed black hair, eyeliner, makeup, the whole hog. I remember my, mom, my mother used to sort of say, is this foundation pale enough for you, dear? And my favourite sentence that she said to me were, are all the boys wearing 
that colour lipstick at three o'clock in the afternoon. So it wasn't, are they all wearing lipstick, but are they all wearing that colour lipstick at three o'clock? It was very specific. I like, I like the specificity of it. So we were very, and I remember that the, you know, when, when Jenny came into school one day with massive back combed hair and, and, and purple lipstick and eyeliner, we were going, oh my God, what are you? And she said, I'm a goth. And then within a couple of weeks, there was a pandemic of goths within our school. Everyone was a goth. Any cool person was a goth. And so we were Mark 1. Mark 2 goth was a bit softer, a bit more accessible. So they started into The Cure and it was a bit more happy or The Mission. And then then towards the end, it was even more accessible, all about Eve and billowing sleeves. Goth Mark 3 was they managed to branch out into colour. So you had things like Cocteau Twins and there were shoegazing and there was sort of, you know, a bit more sort of less black and white. And then Goth Mark 4 coincided when subculture which historically youth subculture had been embedded in music music was the identity of whether you're a mod a rocker a punk a psychobilly mm-hmm. or whatever it is then social media arrived and social media took over from music as being the substrate of your identity yeah? so youth subculture changed from music based to social media based and then gothmock 4 was emo and emos, rather than talking about how awful life was, were just sort of self-harm and um, be emotionally unstable. There, there was an overlap with, 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 with borderline personality disorder. And then Gothmark 5 was what we now see as ROGD, Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, and non-binary. If you look at all the goths, Gothmark 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, we all looked completely asexual. There's nothing particularly masculine or feminine about any of us. You know, you, I mean, you couldn't really tell what we were. And if you look at photos of me when I started university, you definitely wouldn't think I was male or female. You know, I, I went on a holiday to Istanbul once uh, when I was 20, and I think everyone thought I was a transvestite prostitute, and I got chased down the street by Istanbul men. Um, <laughs> I like once saw what was happening, <laughs> and someone insisted on walking back to my hotel for my own safety. Um, but you know, but it wasn't about gender. We just didn't look particularly gendered. Whereas now. You know, someone at school says, oh, I'm non-binary. And then there's a pandemic of non-binary. So th- so it's not that suddenly everyone's a transsexual. No, of course it's not. It's a subculture. It's the coolest thing to be. So non-binary, ROGD, is just Gothmark 5. But the, the problem we have is that we've made it into this pseudo-medical condition. So when I was 16, luckily, there were no clinics that were treating me and giving me affirmative goth treatment. I wasn't able to get my lips tattooed purple. I wasn't able to get my hair permanently back home. I wasn't able, you know, I was just having to like, you know, do all these things myself. And my mother was buying me my foundation. It wasn't pale enough. And yeah, but now you've got these clinics who are affirming these Gothmark fives and saying, what's the medical condition? And, you know, that's the problem. It's it's a subculture. Let them be the subculture. I know. I, I, I think it's really, I really, I really like what you say there. But I do think it's interesting between Gothmark 3 and Gothmark 4, we lost music and we gained self harming. And it's it's kind of an interesting point because I think music has huge consolation for teenagers, and I feel very oh yeah sa- yeah I think it I goes very we, deep. We used to be we, we used to be, we used to luxuriate in our melancholy with a background yeah. of joy division, you know. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're so misunderstood, we're so miserable. Whereas then then social media arrives and look how you can self harm you. It's almost like an instruction kit on how to how to mutilate yourself. So you know, none of us knew how to sort of be self destructive. We just sort of like you know think about fantasize about. But now then the emos had social media and they could look at all these things on Instagram that Instagram pretends doesn't exist uh, on, on how to self harm. And then all of a sudden you're sort of you know, you become a borderline person sort of who's self-harming repeatedly so that was the that was the shift and now music is just background music kids don't yeah. really get as excited about music as we did 
I don't think they do, and they certainly don't follow. No, they're obsessed about their social media profiles. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's no obsessive following every song, every track, every lyric. No. None of that. No. It's not at to the intensity, and certainly not half as widespread or as as soul nurturing as it seems to have yeah. been. Yeah, no, it's all all the focus is all on the social media profiles. So. You know, it's, it focuses on themselves and their own profile. That's what I was about so to say. Which than is you following a band, it's, mm. it's how many people are following you on social media. And wha- rather than you looking outward and looking at the godlike, you know, mastery of of Morrissey and stuff, instead you're thinking about yourself and how you look and how you come across and how other people might perceive you. And it, it's just a complete flip, and it's not healthy. It, and it's no. also really lacks creativity and transcendence, you know, like all of these labels and even the obsession with mental health diagnoses that you see in a lot of these kids, TikTok profiles or whatever, it lacks the kind of transportation of a fantasy musical artist or like the goth persona and the goth aesthetic. Like there's something uh, really fantastical about that. Now, of course, there is definitely a fantasy involved in gender transition or the idea that sex isn't real and all of the ways that a quote non-binary person is blending the aesthetic but I don't think that there's an opportunity for something you know fun and connected in it it feels very dark in a different way and it feels interesting too because there's a demand to be recognized and seen by the outside world. And I don't know if that was true. Like in, in your childhood, as when you were fully goth, were you demanding for your parents to play along with it? Like, was there a difference there as well? But I suppose <clears throat> what we did was we would love it if someone would would perceive as big as as, as a as a good goth, as very goth. If someone didn't get that we were goth, we were very upset. So so if you've got a child who who's the goth mark five and they get validated by the school declaring them to be, look, so and so is now goth mark five. So and so is now non non binary or now a, a, a you know a female or male or whatever it is. Or they go to a clinic and they get uh, um, affirmed. So all this affirmation is just is just you know it's a bit like telling little as you're a very good goth you're very successful mm-hmm. the best goth around you're definitely a goth and that's you know as, as, a, as a as a teenager you want to be good at what you're interested in so it's you know it's the same formula it's just a different manifestation we just don't perhaps don't need to medicalize it and confuse it for something that it's not because most of what we do know is that most people who question their gender in childhood will not question their gender as an adult we know that so the risk is now that we're we're chemically castrating people because they're the new sort of goth, because we're confusing them for something they're not. In in the gender critical discussions, people are often focused on gender stereotypes and misogyny oh. and all of those things. And I hear you talking a lot about this just being kind of a cultural and social trend. And um, I definitely agree with it being trendy and being kind of the new subversive subculture what do you think the role is of our maybe overly rigid ideas about male and female? That kind of goes into gender ideology, right? These kind of categories and boxes. You can't, you can't have gender ideology without gender stereotypes. And, you know, I describe people as being either gender confident or gender underconfident, like a spectrum. And the gender confident person can say, well, I can do this and it doesn't fit in your framework. So your framework's rubbish. Whereas the gender underconfident person goes, oh, my God, I'm not quite right. I need to change myself to fit into the framework. And all my trans 
people, gender people, they all describe very, very rigid stereotypes. They all say, well, you know, men like this, 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 and this, women like this, 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 and this, and because I don't fit in with this, you know, whereas if you say to them, well, okay, so you're, you're, you're a boy, but you feel that the things about you aren't, aren't male. Surely if they're about you and you're a boy, they are male. They're mm-hmm. just, you just need to widen your repertoire of what it is to be a boy. And the, the other example I always give that everyone's always sick of me hearing about, talking about is when I was, I grew up in, in North Wales and it's very, very, very um, Welsh, white, 1970s. We were the only brown family there. My, my family was like fleeing, fleeing India to go after after the, 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 the horrors of the partition of India. They wanted nothing to do with India. They wanted no reminders. They went somewhere far away and, and all there were were Welsh people and sheep and nothing else. We were the only brown family. Mm-hmm. And I went to school for the first time and I came home and I said to my mother, mummy, I don't, I don't think I should be brown. I think I'm just like everyone else. I think I should be white. And and her and her task then wasn't to say, oh, yes, you're trans-ethnic. You were born in the wrong body. We're going to get you ethnic cleansing. Her task was to expand little Az's repertoire of what it was to be anything, including brown, and me to build up my own understanding of me as a brown person. And, you know, there's no difference, really, between a child who goes to their mother and says, mommy, I think I should be a girl, or little as saying, mummy, I think I should be white, that you expand that child's repertoire of what it is to be male or female, because children don't know. How mm-hmm. does a child know? You know, so, so you know, if, if a child thinks that being a boy is this or being a girl is that, maybe they don't have much of an understanding. And maybe, you know, there's, or, there's okay for different sorts of boy or different sorts of girl, because the ones mm-hmm. I talk to don't have a very big repertoire at all. They think that all boys play rugby, they like war. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, well, I, I hate rugby. <laughs> so, the, 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 but the, but, the, but that goes along with the autistic mindset again, very black and white, and very rigid. It's also the ultimate in in what children should have, which is magical thinking, and you know, it's it's, yeah. it's you know, and creativity. Yeah, it's their right. I to. encourage people to be subversive because by being subversive, you can subvert frameworks rather than being conformative to framework you know be, being an adolescent is all about being subversive and i encourage people to be subversive you know, like, you know if the framework doesn't fit just subvert it don't change yourself you know you're not wrong the framework's wrong and um have you thought of or have you approached the tavistock to say well i ran a clinic you know in the portman which is the tavistock and portman is the name of that uh, uh hospital or trust or whatever it is. Have you approached them to say, I run the I ran that group for twelve years and I'd like to run it again? So I did actually. So I I, I um I came back and I said I'd like to run the group and they said, Oh no 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 and they it's 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 funny because they um they're not interested at all. But then I remember going up to the, to the chief executive of the Tavistock um, when I was there saying how, because I, I worked in Gids for a bit as, a, as, a, as an honorary. Um, and it was all madness because you'd get, you'd get sort of Johnny coming in aged four or five um, who'd said to his mother, oh, maybe I should be a girl. And the, the mother had watched some 30 minute Channel 4 documentary, was now an expert and had decided that their child was trans and had told the school and told everyone and bought Johnny a wig and changed his name by deed poll. And, you know, and I was saying to the, the, the all the all the kids were doing was, was affirming these people. And I was saying, isn't there something mad about this? Aren't, aren't you, why aren't you exploring them? And, you know, a very prominent person in Gids, who at the time said to me, um, is it any more, is it any more mad than, than being homosexual or gay? And I thought, 
what? And and that that is an indication of just how steeped in homophobia mm. the that institution is. Um, and you know that institution who never knowingly have employed any gay um, uh, consultants or therapists. And um, you know, the, the, I, I remember when I was trained there, so many um uh seminars and had two terms on the psychopathology of homosexuality you know so it's it's you know the the transsexual solution was 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 perceived as 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 strange as the homosexual solution in their eyes what sort of year so, are you now talking about this is uh 2000 2012 wow so so that so you know there was um you know, this is the this is the institution who said to someone who was their only candidate for a, a job, uh, their their home candidate. They they took them to one side and said, um, "You know, we can't possibly give you the consultant job because we couldn't possibly be seen to employ a homosexual." So um, this was two thousand six. Uh, so you know that 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 so it's coming from that sort of institution. But so. You know, it's, it's... We need to really flush this out because people who don't know much about this topic have this perception like, well, if a child coming out as gay in their teens is something that we should accept and support and not make a big deal of, the same should be true for a child coming out as trans in their teens, right? That is the argument that's often used in support of the affirmation model, specifically in an ROGD case. Who cares if it's sudden? Who cares if it's out of the blue? But actually, there's so much homophobia built into this that people don't necessarily see unless they really slow down and examine this all. So can you just say a little bit more about the overlap here between homophobia and the affirmative model. So, um, in terms of the affirmative model, if you've got a, 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 if you've got uh, children who um, question their gender, we know an awful lot of them. Most of them will end up not having a problem with gender, but will end up probably being gay. We know that. So, the affirmative model um, would capture those people who would probably otherwise be gay and not have them with their gender and would put them on a conveyor belt of changing them into another trans sex and a lifetime of hormones and having castrated them beforehand. So in a way, it's a way of cleansing the, the population of people who would otherwise be gay. Um, and, you know, we know that lesbians are becoming obsolete because they're all becoming trans men because the social media influences make it far more uh, attractive to be a trans man than a lesbian. And, I, and I, you know, I, I ask young um, trans male identifying patients, I said, look, what about what about you? You said that you you were a bit of a tomboy and that you fancy girls. Isn't that a lesbian? Again, no, 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 I'm not a lesbian. I said, well, do you know any lesbians? No. Mm-hmm. Do you know any famous lesbians? Can you name me one famous lesbian? They said no. Mm-hmm. And can you can you name me any famous trans males? They they reel off a whole load of social media influencers. So there's nothing exciting or sexy in the, in the young mind about being a lesbian because I can't think of any. But yeah, so so we're we're kind of getting we're, 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 it's, it's it's almost like a solution to homosexuality is let's just trans them into something else. And and going back to the thing about coming out as being gay or coming out as being trans, it's completely different, of course, because sexuality is doesn't change who you are. It's what you like, what you fancy, what you're mm-hmm. attracted to. Whereas uh, a trans coming out as trans is saying, "I am something else." It's not what it's not 
what you like or are interested in, it's what you are. So, you know, there's no difference between believing that you're, you know, another sex or believing you're another race or believing that you're another height or believing that you're another species. All, they're all, you know, but but sexuality has nothing to do with the, you know, what you are. It's to do with what, what you like, what you fancy. But this unhelpful grouping of LGBTIQI A to Z, um, people don't see the difference. It's a bit like trans, you know, um, the trans incorpor- incorporates uh, what we used to call true transsexuals, transvestites, and within transvestites, I describe living different types. There's a fetishistic and non-fetishistic, and blah blah blah, and there's the autogynophiles, and then the, but they're all called trans, so, mm-hmm. so everyone thinks they're all the same. And you know, so there's no difference between someone who wants to temporarily dress up as a woman because they get sexually excited by it, by someone who believes that they are a woman. Um, and so it's we're, we're reducing it all into and, and now these are all grouped in with uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual people, and then grouped in with asexual people who don't fancy anything. So our, our you know we 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 stop referring to people as either trans or transvestite or gay. We just refer to people as LGBTQI. And you know you watch the news and they talk about LGBT people and they say, what what is an LGBT person? Um, so I think this is, there's an unhelpful reductionism where, which results in us thinking that they're all the same. And I'm also thinking about the importance when you think about identity development of having a sense of where things could go if you weren't a lesbian or if you are gay. And, and because LGBTQAI has all kind of gotten blended together, there isn't even that helpful distinction, which, you know, there's a really great paper that I will link in the show notes about lesbian identity development. And many of the individuals interviewed said that as children, they felt very confused. They wanted to be boys. They had what you would consider gender dysphoria. And it wasn't until they met other lesbians that could show them, actually, it's okay to be this way. It's okay to express yourself this way. It's okay to have these preferences and gave them an idea of what was possible that they were able to move forward in their own identity development. And because we've created this new category of person, it's not totally new, but this trans category, it kind of fixates the mind of the young dysphoric person that these are the possibilities for me, which is becoming a trans man and transitioning and having top surgery. And so when we eliminate the other possibilities, of course, we see everyone going down one pathway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the idea of top surgery, I mean, it's such a sanitized way of saying a double mastectomy. Um, you know, it's, it's like, it's... Bottom surgery. Yeah. Bottom surgery isn't yeah. even the right word. Like, it's 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 just absolutely, <laughs> you know, it's playing with language. It's it's. it's... But I but I had I had a patient who said, um, oh, no, no, I'm not a gay man. I mean, I couldn't be a gay. I said, well, what do you mean? You're, but you're biological male, you, you fancy men. No, but I don't like gay bars and gay clubs. And that was their rationale for not being gay. I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> you know being gay isn't about going to gay bars and gay clubs, don't you? So, um, how do you see it going forward now? Um, how do you think the UK is? And I know there's been an awful lot of uh, huge move, moves in the UK recently. I think that um, the... The, the, I mean, there's a tsunami awaiting to happen of people who will regret. And up until now, there's been a trickle of regretters. But then I think 
you know, five or 10 years, there'll be an explosion of people who've said to the health service, what have you allowed me to do to myself? Um, there'll be a lot of legal cases and um, there'll be a, there'll be a generation of uh, people who are physically sexually displaced through what can only be described as iatrogenic harm and the health services doing harm whereas now you go to the people who feel they're doing the right thing and they and, and they, they they feel that the, what they're doing is right and helping helping people but they they're not actually um and so there'll be a, a wave of 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 these people regretting so we just uh, just wait for that to happen really it's an incredibly sad idea that that's what might happen. Well, the two the two things that, that are worrying are are, the, are the, the the huge amounts of regretters, but also the fact that we seem to have have ditched reality and science and embraced this strange cult like thinking, which has been capturing everyone. You know, sort of, and and it's like the emperor's new clothes. They don't they don't really think that, but they're but they're being seen to say it. Um, not just politicians who just do what you know who are, who are dishonest at the best of times but you know rural colleges and medicine and mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they all seem to be captured it's strange well one of the ways that because I've, I've been studying mass psychoses trying to understand the current moment that we're in and one of the ways that societies have brought them to an end is by calling out reality and speaking in reality and kind of having those conversations far and wide so we're very grateful that you've come on to contribute to these types of conversations on our show. So thank you so much for having us or for us having you, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) The pleasure was mine. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on gender, a wider lens. This podcast is sponsored by rhyme and Genspect and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 